Welcome, everybody, to episode two of Docket by the Bay Safe Stations. I'm Wes Adams, Anne Arundel County State's Attorney, and I am happy to have with me today Captain Russ Davies from the Anne Arundel County Fire Department, Jen Corbin, Head of Mobile Crisis Response, and Lieutenant Steve Thomas from the Anne Arundel County Police Department, Jen's partner and the police lead for the crisis intervention team. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So today we're going to talk a little bit about safe stations. If you have not heard about a safe station here in Anne Arundel County, it is an incredible program that my three guests here really do a tremendous job running and saving lives. The basic outline of the program is that if you're suffering from addiction, you can go into any Anne Arundel, Annapolis, police or fire station, lay down your needle, ask for help, and these tremendous people and our heroes will help you get into into treatment. Before we talk about really how this program came together, Jen, give everybody an idea of who you are and what you do, and then give us give us a picture of what life was like before the Safe Station program was created. Yeah, so what we do at Crisis Response is we have a 24-hour warm line, which uh, people can call for any needs in the county. It can be um, mental health, substance use. It can be help with insurance, benefits. We kind of guide them in the right direction. We have Mobile Crisis, which, of course, runs with the police department. And then we have some outreach programs in the sense of care coordination. But really, it's just wraparound services for the county for any situation that might be occurring to link people with the appropriate resources or to offer mental health or substance use uh, linkage if needed. Um, The question about what we were doing before safe stations um, in regards to the heroin epidemic is we were partnered with um, the police department, which we have CIT officers linked with mental health clinicians at crisis, which is special trained officers who've gone through um, classes to work with clinicians on kind of building a relationship with people who are struggling with substance use disorders. And really what we were tasked with doing was following up on every overdose. And the problem being, we weren't having much success. I mean, we would go out, we would knock on doors the next day after an overdose. We would try and meet people in the ED after being administered Narcan and having an overdose while they're being medically checked out. But in reality, a lot of people weren't taking us up on the offer of treatment. And a partway through, officers and clinicians were having a lot of conversation about there's got to be a different way to do it. Uh, And meanwhile, Lieutenant Thomas, who's my partner, was researching a program called PARI in which people can kind of come when they're ready. And really, it was to a police station. So we kind of started the conversation of can we be more successful if people are are reaching out because they're ready for treatment instead of us trying to track them down and not force them into treatment, but kind of get them motivated through other ways. And um, we're kind of finding that when people are ready for treatment and they stick their mind to it, they're tending to have a little more success. You mentioned police and fire sitting to my right and left. I'm going to shift a little gear here and ask Steve Thomas. Lieutenant, are you, first of all, are you a CIT trained police officer? I am. And we, um, we do our own training here now. We run four classes a year. We limit our students to 22 into a class so that we have an intimate relationship. And the training's pretty intense. It's 40 hours of hands-on training, learning about mental illness. And most of our instructors come from the outside or family members and even uh, consumers who were suffering with mental illness. And talking to Jen about what you guys were doing before, what she was doing before, she mentioned there was a police response 
how was the police responding to these overdoses and, and really what was the approach before the whole safe stations came into being? We were there, we were doing follow-up, we would talk to, um, really do door knocks and meet one-on-one with those who had overdosed. Um, we were door knocking on every non-fatal overdose and offering treatment to them. Uh, we we had a lot of success, but of course it wasn't, we wanted to do something better. So when we started researching in the party, and as Jen said, it gave people the opportunity when they were ready for treatment, the open door, when that window was open and with PARI and how we were responding, within 20 minutes to a half hour, a clinician is responding to help them start the recovery process. And, and you guys have mentioned this word PARI. For those who are not around this all the time, what does PARI stand so for? What does the, it mean? It's the Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative. It started in Gloucester, Massachusetts, where the police chief there opened up the police station to anyone with addiction and said, come in and we will, the police officers will help you find recovery. There you had street cops going and making phone calls to um, inpatient facilities, outpatient, whatever it took for that person. With Jen's model of this, it actually goes a step farther. We have mental health professionals doing that but how we assist with the police and fire, the fire department is there as an entry point, but we're there working with them. And actually through your office, we are the only jurisdiction I know of in the country that is working through the obstacles of the criminal justice system. Um, it allows us to get people in the treatment before going to court. Basically they're turning themselves into us. We're getting their minds clear, clean, where they're going to court, where they understand what's going on. They're not still in active addiction or active withdrawal in court. And they're taking responsibility for their behavior while they're under the influence and while they're using, but then going to court again with a clear mind, understanding the ramifications of their actions. And we've had great success with that. Awesome. And Captain Davies, we've heard from Lieutenant Thomas and Jen about what they were doing before this whole program came together. What was life like for the firefighters and paramedics before safe stations? Sure. Just like the other agencies in the county, we were seeing the impact of the overdoses. Um, this has been something that's going on for several years. Uh, as a matter of fact, in 2014, due to the number of overdoses we were seeing, we trained our EMTs and firefighters to be able to give Narcan because we were seeing an increase in those calls. And weren't we one of the first jurisdictions we, for police and fire to be well, using for, Narcan? Yes, for, for police and fire. You know, paramedics have used it since the 1970s, but it was very new in Maryland for firefighters and EMTs. That happened in January of 2014. And then we assisted the police getting their program started, and they became the first police agency in the state to give Narcan, and that was in March of 2014. But we continue to see an increase. So we fast forward to 2017, we're still seeing the numbers increasing. We had a weekend where we had run 18 overdoses in about a 48 hour period. Um, Chief Graves had been looking at a safe stations program out of Manchester, New Hampshire. We reached out to them to find out what they were doing. He in turn reached out to the county police chief to say, do you think this is something that we could work together and do here? So we had this 18 overdose weekend and up until then, was there any real coordination between the agencies about how we were responding to this as a county? No, you know, everybody, it, there was a, a degree of coordination, but everybody was pretty much doing what their specialty was. And there really wasn't a unified 
uh, program in place. So we get to this 18 overdose weekend. Chief Graves reach out to Chief Altamari. And what happens? So on March 6th, the uh, the city and the county police, along with the city and Enroll County Fire Department, um, crisis response, the health department, your office, um, representatives from the hospital sit together at fire at police headquarters, um, and we talk about it. And coincidentally, while we had been looking at safe stations, the county police had been looking at PARI, uh, the Annapolis City Police had been looking at the Angel program. So everybody had in mind an idea they wanted to go. So basically, in the course of about 40 minutes, which is really unheard of in anything that I've seen in my career, all these different agencies put together the framework for safe stations. Um, everybody spoke up about the parts that they thought they could contribute. Um, you know, as you know, your office played a large part with, with bringing down some of the hurdles with the safe stations. And in the course of about six weeks, we went from nothing to a very coordinated and, as it turns out, successful safe stations program. That's pretty amazing to see a number of county agencies really get together like that uh, and, and you know, just work in coordination and in conjunction. And so when we talk about the, the workflow, why, were, why did we pick and really, why is it about the fire stations? Or what is it about the fire stations that really makes this work? Well, you know, there's a couple of things, uh, I believe, that make the fire stations work. First of all, there's a fire station in every community. People people are, are familiar with the fire stations. A lot of times, especially when you look in South County, when the areas were developed, you got a church, a post office, and a fire station. So in a lot of cases, the fire station is already a central point, uh, part of the community. Um, secondly, people are familiar with us. Um, right now, we have, and publicly, we're probably seeing a little bit more favorable light than police in some instances, and, and just very accessible. Um, these are these are buildings that are staffed 24 hours a day, and like I said, people are familiar with this. They see us when we go out and do inspections, when we do um, when we do our food shopping. So there's there's a, a familiarity that comes with the fire station. Okay, and, and I I kind of want to talk through with each of the three of you is sort of in your roles of, if you could take us through. You know, a, a typical safe station scenario. I mean, somebody walks in and 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 how does each one of the three of you play into taking this person who wants to put down their needle and and get them to a point where we're having the success that we're having? So presumably they're going to walk into a fire station, Russ, and, and what happens when they come into the fire station? So most of the time they are presented at a fire station. Um, they come in, they ring the doorbell, um, firefighters are on duty, greet them. Um, they state that they're there for help with their heroin or opioid addiction. Um, the firefighters bring them inside. Most of the stations have a place that they've kind of designated to be able to, uh, to accommodate the person, to speak to them, to, you know, give them a sense of privacy, but yet keep them comfortable. Um, and they start to do a little bit of an intake. The, the, the main thing is we want to make sure that they're not having an acute medical emergency that we need to be treating right then. And that was what I was going to ask you. What, how do these people present? I mean, are they walking in all put together and sober and clean? or You, you know, in many cases, um, that's the case, but sometimes they're not. We've had um, a small percentage where um, their acute medical condition required that they go to a hospital. Um, but that does not eliminate them from the safe stations program. That just means that we notify crisis response that this person's presented at the fire station and we're going to take them to the hospital. But most of the time what happens is we try to make them comfortable. 
um, offer them water. In some cases, I know um, the firefighters have provided food, and we make the notification to uh, to crisis response. Um, they come out usually, you know, very quickly, and it, you know can't give enough credit to to Jen and her team at Crisis Response because they are the ones that are doing the lion's share of the work here. Um, basically, our people are just being nice. And, and that's what it comes down to. Well, they're doing more than being nice. They're taking care of any medical needs that the that the folks need as they walk in the door, too. Right. Which is key. Fire has been really important for us because they can do the vital checks. They can see if they need to go to the ED. They can offer them resources, which has really allowed us a little bit of sense of easiness on the medical side for working with our providers to help get them to the next step. So, Jen, how many cl- clinicians or teams do you guys have over at Crisis Response? That's a loaded question because... So we've changed it up as we've gone through safe stations. So we initially started with just using our regular what we had. We didn't have any funding for this. We did it kind of like everyone else. Let's each throw a resource into the pot and make it work. Well, in that case, we were just using our mobile and CIT teams that were available, which would be um, four shifts a day of mobile. That's to cover us through 24 hours Um, because we're nonstop. And then CIT, we have um, two to three teams on, depending on if it's weekday or weekend. So that was fine for a while. But then as the volume increased more and more three months in, we realized we could not maintain by using our mobile teams. Because by doing that, we were starting to affect police side of things, because our mobile teams are really meant to be out there on police radio for a, a live call for police officers. So that's when we kind of started working on um, developing a safe station unit, which we now run full force. Um, we have two assessors um, during the day. We have three on call in the evening. We have uh, two care coordinators. Um, so we're really trying to wrap the services around. Um, and so basically what happens is as soon as that call comes in, that way we're able to immediately go out what we were finding is if we ran it as a team, we were finding that we were finding ourselves shorthanded and, and needing to kind of subdivide. So we've been just kind of working on developing our own unit, which has been pretty successful over the last couple of months. And when, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna step back to March 6th when we were all sitting around the mm-hmm. table. How many, how many safe stations do you think you could, what did you estimate running a week, Jen Corbin? Five. <laughs> uh, so I guess when everybody asked me what could I handle in a week, I said five. We had seven or eight last night Yeah. in one night. So we went from I can handle five a week to we were getting five a day. Our average is about three a day, 2.5 to three a day now. Um, but it peaks and flows to what we're learning. We're, we're learning some interesting patterns with when we see overdoses go up a day or two later, we tend to find our safe stations increase. So we're really trying to look at some patterns. We're also been able to see the comfort zone of where people report. We have certain fire stations that are used more than others. So we're looking at, you know, how do we wrap ourselves around providing more resources in that area as well. Um, but we, we're learning a lot going in. Having a full year of data is going to really show, be able to show us what we can do and how we can improve the program. Um, but in the sense of showing up, we get there. You know, you I, I got to go back to you. Ask the question, what does someone look like when they show up? It depends on the day and it depends on the person. Some people use right before they come in. Some people are in serious withdrawal because maybe they didn't have access to means to get what they needed, which is what's pushed them over the edge to finally come and get help. And some of them are people who are actively using but functioning in a well-to-do job that show up and say, you know, I need resources for outpatient or this, that, and the other, and they aren't sure where to turn. 
Um, so we get everything from people on medical assistance to high high dollar private insurance. It doesn't really matter. I mean, we get it across the board. I think the interesting thing we're seeing in the trend, I was just talking to fire last night about this because uh, I try to share information when I'm out at the fire stations is one of the things I'm seeing is when a family member brings them in and it's forced, they tend to not follow through. When they come alone or with a peer in recovery, what I mean by that is not necessarily peer support specialists, but people who they go to AA or NA with, who they went to a meeting and they admitted they relapsed or are struggling, they swoop them up and bring them right into a fire station. That's what we're seeing the most. And that's when we're finding successes when they're coming in because they want it, not because the family member wants it for them. So it's been an interesting trend. And you've mentioned a couple of times like assessing and services and it, can you can you describe ex like sort of the nuts and bolts of what sure. your folks are doing when they get into that fire station? Yeah, so it's a little different. It's been a little controversy as I've been kind of sharing the model kind of across the state and also in other states. Um, the interesting thing is I take away the issue of meeting a criteria. So I take I, I don't want to look at this from the insurance side of things. I don't want to look at this from you meet this criteria at 3.5. So you need to go to this treatment center. First question we ask is why are you here today? And why now? Why now? What made you come today? Not yesterday, not a week ago. And so we start there and really the assessment looks at readiness for change motivational interviewing. Why are you here and what do you hope to get out of it? Because sometimes I think what we forget is we say, oh, you're a heroin user, you overdose, you need to go to inpatient. Have you asked them what they want? Have you asked them what they're looking for? Some people might be holding a job now and don't want inpatient. They might want to attend an intensive outpatient. They might want medication assisted treatment. You know, we don't know, but we keep forcing what we think is right on people and don't allow them to have that say. And what we're really trying to do is wrap the services around what meets their needs. And so that's kind of the difference. The assessment starts with why now, why today? And we go from there. And then we do the basic assessment. You know, how much are you using a day? When was your last use? All the basic stuff that we need to do, but we really need to find out why they showed up. And ultimately, is it what what is your goal as you complete your assessment with one of the people who walk in? Honest to goodness, you'd think it would be placement, but it has nothing to do with placement. It has to do with do you know that there's someone who cares and that we're gonna be by your side through the whole time? It was funny, uh, I did an assessment last night and the last thing I said to the individual when they went off, I said, if you don't like where you're going tonight, call in, we have other places. I think we need to remind them that it's not one-stop shop. We need to make sure the program fits the person. We need to let them know that they can call into the warm line for help anytime. And it's working because when people do relapse, because they probably will relapse if you look at the heroin numbers and how sure. things roll. Um, but knowing that even if they do mess up, we're not going to judge them. We're just going to help them again. Um, and that's one thing where Lieutenant Thomas has been really successful because the police a lot of times ends up, end up transporting them to treatment for us, building that rapport. We're starting to get people who reach more out to the CIT officer on their cell phone than to us saying, hey, you know, I screwed up. What can we do? How can you help me? Um, that's the key that we're missing is People might mess up, they might relapse, but as long as they're reaching back out for help, it's a win-win because they know that we're gonna continue to help them no matter what. And that sort of, it's interesting that you had mentioned Steve and the police and, and how involved that they are, especially given the fact that you know, a lot of these people are, have lived on the criminal side of the law sure. instead of the law-abiding side of the law for a long time. And that was sort of uh, what I was gonna ask you, Steve, 
What do we need a cop for? If not there for an arrest, what role are you guys playing and why is it important? We're, we really build a relationship with them. These, um, a lot of them asking for help. There's a lot of barriers there and we all depend on our families to help us every day. And a lot of times they've alienated their families. They have don't have social supports. We become that social support. We're there to knock down the barriers. It may be giving them a ride someplace. Um, some simple barriers. If someone has a court date within 30 days, they cannot go in inpatient treatment because they can't leave treatment to go to court. So we work with your office in just getting cases continued until they're out of treatment. If they have a warrant, and again, we have the, the um, protocol set up through you and your office that for nonviolent misdemeanors, you're really using common sense. If they have a, a theft warrant, because of their addiction, if we can get that warrant quashed and get them in court faster than they would have if we waited to, for them to get picked up, we all win and they're extremely appreciative. We build that relationship and we have had cases where people have relapsed and they're calling us a few days after the relapse saying, hey, I screwed up, I need help, will you help me? Before they're calling committing- Calling you as a police officer. Calling this police officer before they're out committing crimes. That's awesome. Because they know they're going to run out of resources and have to start committing crime to get help. And Steve, I know our readers, I mean, our listeners can't see what you're wearing, but I mean, are you in, are you in a full blown combat fatigue police uniform? Or? No, we, um, it's a softer uniform. It's a polo shirt. Um, and actually for CIT, there's a pin that all CIT officers are given upon graduation from training so that people with mental health issues know to look for that pin that their officers trained in CIT. So my badge on our on our shirt is a larger version of that pin. So if you're out on the street and you see one of those CIT pins, you know that that police officer is specially trained in the mental health counseling to help. Yes. Fantastic. When we're talking about all the, the substance of this, what, what kind of results are we seeing? I mean, I know, Jen, it sounds like you're working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but we're coming up on our one-year anniversary. So how many people have we seen this year? I can tell you since the inception, we've had about 700 people come into the fire stations. And what was 700? About 700. And what was happening early on into the program, we would have people walk in and kind of check things out. And before the firefighters could make the call to crisis response, they would kind of decide that this wasn't the time. Um, they'd leave, and frequently they'd come back either to that station or to another fire station. So the number of people since inception that have come into firehouses is a little bit higher than the number of people that Jen's team has assessed. Um, but to tell you, give you an idea of where we've gone with that, Safe Stations has become so established. In January of this year, we had 80 people come into firehouses, and crisis response assessed 80 people. So... Within How the many community. overdoses did we have? Did we have? Didn't we have more? It was almost match for match or something because I know we were close to at one point we were running more safe stations than overdoses at one point. Yeah. And, and uh, when was the the first person walked into safe stations? How long after the announcement? About fifty minutes. Fifty minutes. About fifty mm -hmm. minutes. We put some uh, we put some information on Facebook right after we announced it at the Brooklyn Park Fire Station, and about fifty minutes later, the first. Uh, the first case came into the station. And I have to tell you that uh, at the Hoops for Hope on Saturday, at the fantastic basketball game between the people in recovery and, and our and our Anne Arundel County Police Force, that first safe stations came up. She gave me a hug. She said hello. 
Uh, she looked fantastic. She's doing great. Um, so 700 incidents record documented incidents. But stop incidents. back for a second before you even go any further. Yeah. Think about that. Someone who was, pan you know, doing things, probably breaking the law at some point because of their addiction, struggling, comes up to the state's attorney and gives them a hug. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Just like people reaching out to Lieutenant Thomas, let's stop and think about this. We're getting people back in and what's happening is they're now giving back, yep. right? So they might've had a problem, they're in recovery and now they're helping other people find the same thing. And with that, they're seeing friends in the state's attorney, the police, fire, whatever it is. That's a part that you can't visualize and people aren't seeing, but we know as sure. a group is happening. And that's where the real change begins. It'll take years to see it, I think, but that's pretty cool. Captain Davies talked about 700 people or 700 incidents. Yeah. How many unique people, Jen, have come in? And then the reality is what kind of numbers of success or long-term sort of change are you starting to yeah, see? So, there's a, so we're starting to crunch a, a bunch of different numbers now because there's things that we're realizing. But overall, we're probably looking at over 500 individuals assessed, you know, maybe more than that. The issue is we break down in-county versus out-of-county because the problem is we've got a lot of people coming into our county now for help um, because word's getting out that will help help people get linked and we're having some success there but we're probably at about i would say 450 500 Anne Arundel county residents i okay. mean the number is getting up there um but then we've also got our out of county residents that we're able to link back to their county with help really it's just making the phone call form i think it's just hard to maneuver the system um but the 700 is we do have repeat people we do have people who went into a safe station, maybe weren't ready for treatment, talk to us, we assess them, we offer them resources, they didn't take it. But then they came back two, three weeks later, maybe a month later and ended up, you know, taking um, the treatment options offered. So sometimes it's just, I think Russ makes a good point. Sometimes they just come in and feel out the water, you know, what's really gonna happen if I come in, especially with legal issues. Right. Um, our second safe station was one that came at the first safe station and just kind of wanted to see what, is it real? Would they really do Am anything? I going to get arrested? Am right. I going to get taken and when, down? And when that didn't happen, then they were willing to come back and ask for help. But I think what's happening now, what I'm hearing is word of the street is they know that it's a safe place. And so they are reaching out. And so that word of mouth is traveling pretty quickly. If, if I can add, Sunday, it, Hoops for Hope, we there was someone there that um, is currently in treatment. And he had some extensive legal issues, multiple counties. And we were able to get him in treatment. And if you just saw the look on his face when I told him that we will go to court with you and we're not there for the trial, we're there for the sentencing. So we can tell the judge, this is where they've been since they came asking for help. And again, it's not court ordered. It's when they want to make the change that Jen talks about. The clinicians are there to help them with the recovery. But then we're just there. They now have the police as their advocates in court just talking about how good they're doing in their recovery uh, and a success has been overwhelming that we haven't had any that have gone back and hurt us and jen when we talked about uh people 500 of them but how many of them have you seen in some type of long-term placement and stayed there of that that 500 or so unique Anne Arundel County residents mm -hmm. that have come through a safe station door. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but it's 
um, have completed a 28-day program, have gone into either a recovery house or returned to whatever program they might have chosen, um, whether it's an intensive outpatient, recovery house, whatever. What's really cool is how many of them are now getting jobs and being productive members because once they get into that recovery house, they have to pay their own rent. So they're back. They're back working. They're back doing what they need to do to be a productive member instead of, you know, before they were panhandling for money or they've lost job after job. They're now really motivated. So we're at a between about 60 percent in success rate. And that's completing treatment. We have a higher number of people we link to treatment. So when people talk about resources not being out there, yeah, we need more resources, 100 percent. We can get people into treatment. It's whether they choose to stay there and do the program or not. And, you know, last year we had about 1,100 overdoses in the year. You know, I think it was a 1,087 for the entire year. Uh, what Are we tracking numbers based on, on year-to-date statistics so far for this year? We are, and I believe the last set of data that came out last week from the police, we were running about 40 or 45 behind the same time last year. I want to say it was roughly 335 to, to 287 as far as just the number of overdoses. So there, there's been a decline, a trend towards a decline at the beginning of the year. And, and in the first quarter of this year, it sounds like we're down 10, 12% from this time last year. It looks that way. And, and I'm sure that it's, you know, if you think about it, 300 people who, if you accept that 300 people are in long-term recovery, that, that has to eat into the number. I'm certain that they were overdose victims. And multiple overdose victims. Yeah. That's what we're forgetting is people don't overdose just once. A lot of times people were multiple overdoses, um, which we knew about from the overdose reports, which is why we were reaching out. But it was waiting for them to come in. I remember there was one week in particular we were having a rough go of it on overdoses. I, not I, but my pro, the program placed three individuals from safe stations with a combined of 31 overdoses. Wow. Between the three of them. Wow. So you look at that and you say, two of them are still in recovery. So where would we be now? Because not only is it the issue of overdoses, but with the fentanyl and carfentanyl out there, they could be dead. Because people aren't lasting through several overdoses anymore. You know, I mean, I keep hearing on the street, oh, it's great the overdoses are down, but the deaths are up. But if the overdoses are down, that's less people overdosing. I can't imagine what our death rate would be if we didn't have the people in treatment. I think we we can look at the negative or we can look at the positive. For me, I'm looking at the positive. The people that aren't overdosing anymore don't have that risk of dying. And if I can add, one of those people Jen just talked about, I saw her over the weekend with her children being a mother and that's sensational when she had her her kids on her lap out in at a public event and it's something when you see with her with the rest of her family where we're able to reconnect them to their family and their social supports let let me ask one last question because you know we've talked a lot about second chances here with with safe stations i mean giving somebody a second chance on life sounds like there's some legal second chances but you know if there's no accountability lieutenant thomas then you know, second chance isn't a second chance. It's just business as usual. So what kind of accountability has had to come out of some of these instances? I know we haven't, not everybody has been perfect. Mm-hmm. We we have had, I can give one example of a young man that went into treatment. Um, we had a warrant quashed, a summons issued, giving him a court date in the, after he was getting out of treatment. And he didn't follow the treatment plan 
and was walking out of treatment. We quickly contacted your office and we took him back into custody. And he and, went to and he and, went to jail. And he went he to jail and he's back in the Jennifer Road Detention Center. And so you know, part of the program which I don't think we really had a chance to mention is you know, once somebody comes in who's had a warrant and maybe when they're pending that court date, are they just off living the life or mm -hmm. is there some sort of monitoring going on? No, I mean, we follow them, we work with them, um, and we're in contact with them continually while they're in. It's the unique part of our program is that they have a care coordinator who is following them through their recovery. And, and also the uniqueness is they sign a release so that we they, we are able to talk with police. So they know when they go in. I mean, they're doing it because they want to do it. But they're also, part of that is signing so that there's no HIPAA violation. They right. can't throw out, well, you can't tell police that I left because it's, everything is signed up front saying, look, you know, if you choose to walk out, that's fine. But we've done this for you. You will be pulled back into custody. So they're really in our care. And we do we do go out and visit them one, at least once a week, if not more, and are in touch with their therapist pretty regularly. So, so the Safe Stations program is really a very coordinated uh, second chance. It's a really an approach that when somebody wants help and they come into that station, Jen, you're there to give that help. Mm -hmm. Lieutenant Thomas is there to sort of monitor that they are following through with that help. And I guess that kind of leaves me as the heavy. If, yeah. if they don't follow through <laughs> with does. that help, then, then we have to hold them accountable. And really, that's the coordination between the four agencies that's sitting here that I don't know if we've really seen in the past. But I think that you talk about you being the heavy, but not to flip it back. But in many times, there's a lot of people shaking your thinking because you did give them that chance. They went back to court. And I don't want people to also think they go back to court and they get off easy. They're still doing things. Some of them are getting into drug court. Some of them, you know, if if they've had a strike and they come back, they end up in another program or they're held accountable. But there are things that come from this. I don't want to think that because they go in, that's all that happens. I think it it does show a working relationship and it shows them that there are consequences. But the key I always tell people when fire questions it or police question us doing it that way is I'd much rather have someone stand in court sober, understanding their consequences than high in withdrawal, not caring what the judge says. And that's what's been happening. And when they stand sober, they understand their consequences. I mean, and, and some of the warrants have been quashed of this, this, I don't want to say silly, but the simplest of failing to appear for fishing without a license failing to appear for riding late rail without a ticket. And those warrants were preventing them from getting into treatment. And that's where, I mean, both of those cases, they're both doing extremely well right now in their recovery. All right, I wanna thank everybody for listening to our podcast today, especially I wanna thank our guests from the Anne Arundel County Fire Department, Captain Ross Davies, from our mobile crisis intervention team, the head of that team, Jen Corbin, and of course, Lieutenant Steve Thomas, who leads the Anne Arundel County Police Crisis Intervention Team and Program. Thank you guys all for coming. Tune in to our next episode where we'll get back to talking about fighting crime in Anne Arundel County. Have a good day.